Hey friends, uh, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're so thrilled uh, that you're here. And let me invite you to turn in your copy of scriptures to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our study in our sermon series called Beginnings from the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis 1 through 11 throughout the summer. So Genesis 3, 1 through 24 uh, here this morning. Now, it would behoove me not to mention something very special, something very important uh, here this morning. Uh, We have a couple of guests with us that aren't strangers to many of us. Some of you may not know them because you've uh, started attending Cornerstone within the last six years. Uh, But I'm just thrilled that Pastor Larry and Linda Jones are here this morning. Uh, Larry's the founding pastor here. And and Larry and Linda, to you both, uh, welcome. So glad that you guys are here. Yeah, praise God. I have to tell you... uh, one of the things that Christy and I were praying about when we were looking at uh, you know, God's calling to us into the type of position that we're in is we, we really didn't want God to bring us to an unhealthy church. <laughs> we didn't want God to, to bring us to... Now, we would have gone if that's what he asked of us, but we, we kind of hoped that God would lead us to a place that wanted to get after uh, the Word of God and the mission of God. And, and, and Larry and Linda, your foundation that God used you to build uh, here has been to our benefit and to all of our benefit here. And so just grateful for your ministry And uh, thank you for coming back. It blesses us that you're here. And I hope you'll come again. All right. Well, friends, uh, just this week, uh, Christy and I went to Dunham's. Anybody ever been to Dunham's here in town? Sporting goods store, right? One of the things that happens when I go to Dunham's is I have a hard time walking out without something, okay? Uh, So so Christy and I went there, and uh, we had intentions on just looking, but there it was. There was the treadmill that we'd kind of been coveting, I suppose, and uh, we walked home. Actually, we drove home because it's too heavy to to carry under your arm. Uh, We we brought that thing home in our minivan, and it barely fit in that. Now, uh, it was uh, kind of late when we got home, and and, you, you know, when you get a new box, when you bring it downstairs, it's kind of exciting, right? And, and you want to just get after it. Christy, on the other hand, said, Andy, it's a little bit late. I, I think we should probably wait. There's no rush uh, to this. We're not going to use it tonight anyway. But I said, honey, the girl at the, at the sales, you know, the sales uh, person said, it's going to be fine. It's not a hard thing to set up. And, and there the boys were, my almost 19-year-old boys uh, were standing there. And I thought, the boys will help me. And uh, it's going to be fine. And as I turned to look at the boys, I was saying, yeah, right, guys? Uh, all I saw was the back of their heads and them going into their bedroom saying, Dad, I got to go to bed. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? And so uh, there I was, and Christy was a trooper. She hung alongside of me for a while, but I, I thought for sure it's going to take a half an hour. It took three hours. And there I am, right, right, in the dark, looking at that thing, and I'm trying to get those last couple of screws up into the place they're supposed to go. I've reread the directions a hundred times, and it's not happening, all right? Why does everything have to be so hard all the time? Anybody relate? Uh, things can be tough uh, sometimes. And, and, uh, and I'm thinking there, everybody else is in bed. I'm sweating. It's like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I, I just, I got to let this go. And so I did. Now, church, one of my friends would describe that as what he calls a first world problem. All right? That, that's, that's the reality of it. I mean, uh, we got to bring home a treadmill. Who gets to do that in this world, right? Uh, but there it was. But if we're honest, life gets a whole lot harder than that. I want to throw out some images to you that are kind of sobering, uh, that'll perhaps demonstrate how hard life can be sometimes. COVID-19, uh, cancer, monkeypox, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, riots in Minneapolis, in Portland, at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, the Milwaukee shooting, shooting in Buffalo, in Uvalde, at Highland Park. 
The chaos in Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine, the great resignation, the rise of inflation, gas prices, job markets, pension plans, abortion rights, right to life, pride marches, mental health crises, trans athletes, me too, church too, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, a rise in cohabitation, lower birth rates, lower marriage rates. Church, church, these are just the public challenges that we face these days. They don't even mention the personal ones. I I got a text from a friend of mine uh, this week that said he and his wife and their family were going to visit their niece who had been uh, struggling with cancer for several years and she was losing. And they were going to say goodbye, their whole family. Life can be tough sometimes. Why, Why does it always have to be like this? I mean, what happened to cause the world to be so broken? Well, church, you might remember, God created the cosmos as his ideal temple, and it was good. There was no shame, there was no fear, uh, there was no uh, uh, anything contrary to what God had designed as good. It was just rest. And God watered the earth, and he produced fruit from the trees, and everything that humanity would need was there. It was good. And then, of course, God created people as his divine image bearers. And he equipped us to represent him to the cosmos, both in our work and in our relationships. And it was very good, the text says. And see, friends, we we had the perfect setup. We had everything we needed. (laughs) No one ever had a hard time setting up a treadmill, all right? The good life was ours. Adam and Eve, chapter 2, verse 25 of the book of Genesis, were naked and unashamed. But again, I ask, what happened? How have we drifted so far from Eden? And and for that, friends, as is our habit here at Cornerstone, we turn to God's authoritative and inerrant word. And so look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Church, there's a cause behind our brokenness. (laughs) Enter the serpent, right? Now, uh, we, we need to establish who is this serpent here? What's a serpent doing here? Is this simply another animal uh, or is it something else? And, and verse 1 uh, indicates this serpent, the serpent, is more crafty than any of the other beasts. There, there's something about that that sets it apart from the rest of creation. See, uh, given the ability of the serpent to talk, Uh, to manipulate, to to resist God, as we'll see as the text unfolds. And and given how Moses, the author of Genesis, refers to him as not a serpent, but as the serpent, it's clear that the name serpent here is is simply an embodied state of of a greater and more nefarious character. This is a bad character. And see, prior to Genesis 3, though we don't have all the details, God clearly creates the angels. In fact, we'll reference the angels in short order uh, at the end of our time here uh, today. And see, like mankind, God created angels with agency, with, with the ability to choose to obey God, to dwell in his provided environment or not. And though they too had everything they needed, some of the angels chose to rebel against God, hence they were uh, cast out of the heavens. And so in places like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we, we read narratives that assign many of the, the, that many people assign to the origin stories of Satan, of, of the leader of these fallen angels. For instance, Ezekiel 28.17 says this. It says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings. 
And many understand this to be a reference to Satan's pride and hence his subsequent uh, banishment from heaven. Isaiah 14 is another passage that, that scholars refer to at the origins of Satan. It says this in 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Translated, interestingly, Lucifer in Latin. Okay? How you're fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of dawn. How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Church, this serpent is none other than Lucifer who's the the leader of the fallen angels from heaven, now cast out. And here he shows up in Genesis 3 as the serpent to challenge the authority and the goodness of God. And and notice, he's a crafty serpent. He's crafty. And I I don't mean like good with scissors in a scrapbook, okay? He's crafty. The, The word in Hebrew is arum. Arum. And it's fascinating. Just one verse earlier, Genesis 2.25, we've already referenced it. There's another word that sounds strikingly similar. See, the Hebrew for the word naked in 2.25 is arom. Arom. There's a play on words here that that Moses is bringing to the fore. From arom to arum. And Bruce Waltke elucidates well here. He says, the the, the wordplay of nude and shrewd links the two scenes and draws attention to Adam and Eve's painful vulnerability. (laughs) Arom, arom. Adam and Eve are are naked, they're nude, they're innocent. While Satan is is shrewd and crafty and cunning. Arom to arom. It it sets up the, the rest of the narrative here. Now, Notice one more thing about the serpent. Look again at 3.1. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That the Lord God had made. And see, church, the serpent, like the other beasts, is made. He's a created being. And so, though he may try to assert his independence from God, though as, as, as the passage in Isaiah and Ezekiel demonstrated, though he may try to usurp God's authority and, and grab hold of God's, uh, clearly, uh, uh, his own glory, though he may try to transcend God, he's clearly no more than a, a product of God's creative design, still subject to God's rules, God's sovereignty. Now then, watch, watch how he works. Second half of... 3 verse 1, it says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Church, you notice what Satan does here? It sounds like an innocent question, right? It sounds like something, if you showed up at a growth group at Cornerstone, your, your growth group leader might lead with, something to get you to think, right? Uh, it sounds fairly innocent. Isn't that how angels of light uh, that, that are actually dark work? See, church, God didn't forbid the eating of all the trees, just one. Genesis 2.17, it shows us that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is God's forbidden tree. And so when Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's, He's twisting God's words. He's clearly setting Eve up as he manipulates the word of God. And how does she respond? Well, we wish... Otherwise, but here's what it is. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Now, at face value, what Eve says here isn't totally wrong, all right? I mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is clearly in the midst of the garden. But, but Eve, interestingly, avoids its specific reference. You know, when your, your mom and dad, when you were little, told you not to do something, you wouldn't talk about what they told you not to do, right? That's what Eve's doing here. And though technically she's right to refer to God's instructions as something that he said, Genesis 2.16 uh, clearly states that this is not God's just spoken word. This is God's command. And Eve conveniently leaves that part out. God said it, but he didn't command it. <laughs> And then finally, though, God said in Genesis 2.17, look, if you eat it, you're surely going to die. Eve here uses a different phrase. She says, lest you die. In other words, you might die if you eat it. Church, it's clear that the serpent's question causes Eve to back up, to hedge on the word of God, to compromise on what God has clearly said. Now, why is this important? Well, you may remember that Moses is writing the book of Genesis and, and the other books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to instruct the people of God to follow God's commands such that they might be set apart from the nations around them, that they might demonstrate holiness, that they might point people to God in, in a world hostile to its values, to his values. And in that, God makes very clear the danger of being wobbly with his word being wobbly with his word. And friends, isn't this how it works? I mean, sure, God, God defined marriage as that covenant which exists between one man and one woman, but really? Was he aware of what life would be like in 2022? I mean, maybe the reference to, to homosexual, homosexual activity as sin in, in Romans 1, 26 and 27 has only to do with pedophilia, you know, even, even though that's not what the text clearly says. I mean, sure, God's word teaches that sex is something to be enjoyed within a marriage covenant, but maybe if we just narrow the definition of sexual immorality a little bit, maybe we can get around the issue of cohabitation and we can let it slide. I mean, what is marriage after all anyway, right? Sure, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that anger and adultery are more than just physical acts. But come on, let's not take it too literally. I mean, who really knows the state of our own heart, right? Friends, Getting wobbly with God's word has devastating downstream effects, as we'll see here this morning. See, Satan opens the door of compromise. Eve takes the bait, and the deception grows. Listen to verses 4 and 5. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Church, Satan set Eve up, and now he goes for the jugular. Eve, God was lying to you. You're not going to die. No, no, no. You're going to be like him. And see, God doesn't want that. He's selfish. He's rude. He's given you all these things. But Eve, it's a ruse. Don't believe it. God is holding out on you. And with that, we read in verse 6 of Eve's tragic submission to sin. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Church, Eve listens to the serpent and she looks up at that tree and her eyes tell her, you know what, that's beautiful. That's good. 
You know, maybe the serpent is right. Maybe God is holding out on us. And church, sadly, up until this point, the word good was used by God to describe what he had created. But now, but now here, Eve trans- transcribes the word. She-, she grabs hold of the word to define good as she deems best. And in so doing, she rejects God's word through her disbelief. Through her disbelief. You know, some of us this morning, we, we've heard the stories, we, we've read the passages, we, we've, we've studied the scriptures, we've listened to the teaching, and yet we're like the person that I, that I saw on Facebook this week who said, you know what, I used to think that way, but I don't anymore. In other words, I've, I've become enlightened. God, God was holding out on me. And my definition of good lets me do what I want to do and to live how I want to live. And in turn, I'm good with letting everyone else do the same. And church, this live and live, live and let live mentality, it's appealing to us in many ways. We want to be gracious in all things, and yet rooted underneath the veneer of enlightenment and progress is this bold assertion, you will not surely die. Friends, it's a bold-faced lie. And the bottom line is this. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe a serpent or a savior? 1 John 2.16 warns, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the cosmos. You know who's under the authority of the cosmos now, this side of the fall? We are. The prince of darkness exercises his reign, but not completely, as we'll see. (laughs) Church, sometimes trees look good to us. But if we're wobbly with the word, we're we're vulnerable to disbelief. And and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, they become overwhelmingly appealing because our disbelief has opened the door to our rebellion. Church, the first sin was not eating the fruit. It was disbelieving God. Eve saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and was, and, and was to be desired to make one wise. And so she ate. And by the way, so did Adam. <laughs> Adam's not off the hook. Adam was there the whole time watching what was going on. It's very clear. And so their disbelief gave way to their disobedience. Church, God gave Adam and Eve Everything God wanted them to be satisfied in the flesh. One flesh, nothing lost. He wanted them to savor the glory of the cosmos, uh, the glory of His creation design. It was all good. And God gave them everything they needed for joy and satisfaction. But in the end, they chose the serpent over the Savior. They rejected God's provision. They disbelieved God's word. And they disobeyed God's law. And the world has never been the same. Notice the devastating results here. Verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Church, the effect of their sin was both staggering and immediate. Like a band-aid ripped from the flesh, so the security and the unity and the intimacy of the garden were ripped from their experience. And for the first time, the ugliness of shame and fear descended on them like a dark cloud. And Adam and Eve realized for the first time their, their nakedness The arum, the craftiness of Satan, gave way to an awareness of their arom, their nakedness. And and their relationship with each other would forever be compromised. Upon becoming aware of their sin, they reached for fig leaves as fast as they could. (laughs) We wonder why marriage is so hard these days. 
It's been hard ever since the fall, friends. The fall led to broken relationships with each other. Church, all of our present relational brokenness comes by rejecting God's design, by rejecting God's ideal. It began in the garden and it continues today, but the cost wasn't just in their own relationships. Look at verse 8 and following. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And I ate. Church, for the first time in the whole creation narrative, the concept of fear enters the scene. Fear and shame. Presumably, God had been walking in the garden with Adam and Eve at this time in the cool of the day, and He'd done it several times before. But, but now, when, when Adam and Eve would have known God would be there, they're nowhere to be found. They're, they're afraid, and they're hiding from God. Their, their relationship with God is broken. Not only their relationship with each other, but also with God. Nonetheless, God finds them. (laughs) Funny how it works, right? You can't hide from someone who's the one who created the hiding places. (laughs) And so God says, what's going on, Adam? And Adam comes up with every excuse. He says, first, God, you gave me this woman. It's your fault. (laughs) Shouldn't have done it. And then when that clearly doesn't fly, he says, well, she gave me the fruit. It's her fault, not mine. Likewise, the woman blames somebody else. She blames the serpent because there's no one left other than him. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Church, were the relationship with God not broken, Adam and Eve would not have experienced shame and they would have had no need to blame others. And yet because of their sin, they were ripped from relationship. And the evidence of brokenness manifests quickly. (laughs) Blaming others for your sin is one of the oldest tricks in the book, isn't it? Now then, God turns to the serpent with a powerful indictment. Because after all, the serpent was the mastermind behind the attack on Eden. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, I want you to look at what what curse God gives to Adam and Eve as a result of their sin. Not, Not only cursed in relationship, but also this, verse 16. To the woman, he said, This is God speaking. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Church, for Eve, what had once been designed as as life-giving fulfillment and joy in the bearing of children now gives way to danger and labor and pain. And it once, what once had been designed for intimacy and unity and safety in marriage now becomes tenuous. The woman's desire shall be for her husband. In other words, husband and wife aren't going to get along in the ways that they used to. And in fact, the woman will often suffer under the man's misguided power. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Verse 17. 
And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Church for Adam, like Eve, What was once designed for life-giving joy and fulfillment, work, now becomes painful, becomes difficult. And the eating that was once easy by God's provision, the fruit was there, now becomes a chore, now requires sweat. And on top of that, what was once available in perpetuity, the, the, the tree that sustained life, is now cut off. And death follows. God says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice what God does in verse 22. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What a sobering picture, huh? What a sobering reality. God sends angels. I I mentioned angels earlier. Here's where they show up. God sends angels, cherubim, with, with flaming swords to guard the entrance of Eden. This paradise, once free, is now lost to humanity. And Adam and Eve are ripped not only from a relationship, but also from rest. They're ripped away from the garden. That that seventh day rest designed to go on. Remember, there's no end to the seventh day. There's no morning and evening on the seventh day. God designed the rest to continue. And yet humanity in their sin, in their rebellion, in our sin, in our rebellion, rejected it. And creation now becomes marred and the rest is broken. (laughs) And friends, over the next several weeks, we're going to see indications of that brokenness in several places. See, we know from the New Testament that Adam represented humanity before God. And by Adam's sin, humanity has become stained with sin. Thus, Romans 5.17 says, By the trespass of the one man, of Adam, death reigned through that one man. Church, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we fell under a curse. Adam represented us before God. And and this concept called original sin took effect. And we were born into it. Church, with Adam's sin, the rest is broken, not only for them, but for us today as well. And the era of death is here. But church, even in that, hope isn't lost. Hope remains. See, right from the beginning, God demonstrates His sovereignty and His glory over the craftiness of the serpent. God's not surprised by the serpent. God's not intimidated by the serpent. God's plan is not thwarted by the serpent. In fact, it's only just beginning. See, as God makes humanity ready for redemption, He prepares us to demonstrate the fullness of His love, of His Trinitarian love. Look at verse 8 once again. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Church, God knew that Adam and Eve had sinned. It didn't surprise him. 
And yet his pursuit of them was never in doubt. God still came to the garden. God still pursued them. Adam and Eve couldn't hide for long. God God entered into their mess. And isn't it beautiful? That's who God is. That's what God does. God enters right into our mess. He doesn't shrink back from us. He doesn't look at us and say, my stars, how could you do that? I'm out. He steps right down into the garden. And he sees us. And he says, I can do this. I can provide for you even in this. I, uh, I connect with a dietician once in a while. Uh, watching my weight is always a struggle, and that's just part of my story, and I hate it, but it's the reality for me. And uh, a dietician's been helping me watch what I eat. And, and frankly, uh, it's been a tough uh, month on that front for me, and I have all kinds of excuses, and that's kind of fun. But I've gained more weight than I want to, and, uh, and I want to be healthy with. And, and I had this appointment with my dietician, and I wanted to cancel it, okay? I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want to tell her what, what happened. I was disappointed and embarrassed, and, and, and I, I just didn't want to have the conversation. But she called anyway. <laughs> she called at the scheduled time, and it was good. I needed to talk to her. I, I needed to confess where I was at in my process, <laughs> Church, God's pursuit of Adam and Eve remained even in their sin. So does His pursuit of you and me. Now, though they initially tried to avoid responsibility, we can give Adam and Eve a little bit of credit here. (laughs) They finally admit to God what they'd done. In verse 12, Adam says, yep, I, I ate the fruit. Eve says the same thing in verse 13. And church, here's the thing. We can cancel our appointment with God Perhaps, at least we think we can, but guess what? He knows. He knows. I, I, could, I could have canceled with my, my appointment with my dietician. I could have lied to her, and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be fine, right? Except I, I wouldn't. <laughs> Church, God's all-knowing. He knows everything. And so the first step on the road to redemption is confession. So admit your sin. Confess your sin to, to a holy God that knows. God pursued Adam and Eve. He said, hey, where you been? And he elicits this confession from them. Church confession is essential on the road to redemption. Now, of course, the next thing God did was to tell Adam and Eve the plan for making up their sin, right? God said, okay, I want you to say 10 Hail Marys. I want you to, to walk around you know, the woodshed 10 times. I want you to, to pay penance for your sin, right? Is that what God said? No, praise God. No, that's not what God said. Friends, that's not how God works. See, God knows we can't measure up. We can't, we can't do what's necessary to pay a proper penance for our sins. So guess what God does? Genesis 3, verse 20 and 21. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Church, remember Adam and Eve standing there before a holy God holding fig leaves to cover themselves. And frankly, the fig leaves weren't doing the job. How often do we try to cover our shame and our guilt and our sin with that which is utterly inadequate? We grasp at straws hoping no one notices. But what does God do? I see the need. I see the inadequacy of your solution. And I can cover this. And so God takes an animal. And, and last I checked, in order to cover somebody with an animal skin, an animal has to die first, right? And God slays the animal. He makes a sacrifice out of his good and bountiful creation. And he says, I got you. And he wraps them in the skins of this animal in an adequate cover. 
He gives of the bounty of His blessings to do what Adam and Eve couldn't do for themselves. He takes a life and He covers their nakedness. It's not the last time God's going to do that, amen? And then finally, we, we turn to God's reference to the serpent. This is, I think, the climax of the passage here, verses 14 and 15. It says, the, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know who the offspring of the woman would be? The Messiah, church. Jesus. Jesus would be born of a woman. And Eve would be his ultimate grandmother. (laughs) And church, the offspring of the woman would be the Messiah who secures the victory, the ultimate victory over the serpent, over sin and death. The Messiah is the one who reverses the curse of Eden. And yes, the serpent would bruise his heel. The Messiah would would suffer an excruciating death at the hands of of the Romans on on the cross at Calvary. And yet Jesus would not stay in the grave they put Him in. He'd get up out of it. And He'd demonstrate the glory of the Father. And He'd reign victorious. He'd go to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, awaiting His glorious return when Satan and all his henchmen will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. God's already won. God's waiting that none would perish. That that at the proper time, that only He knows, He'll come back and He'll finish the job, church. Right here in Genesis 3, We don't see sin without God's Savior, (laughs) saving plan. There it is. Yes, the world is broken. Amen? But yes, God has a plan. Amen? God's plan is to fix the broken world out of His own love. (laughs) Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were eating the fruit... God sent His Son to die for you and for me. Friend, you may be here this morning and you may be reeling from sin's effect. You might be staggering from the pace of the the change of the worldviews around us. You might be, be struggling with the blistering effects of a broken marriage. Maybe the pain from work has has overwhelmed you and it's sucking the life out of you and you don't know how how to continue. Maybe the sorrow of of, of loss in death or disease has overtaken you or or somebody you love. I'm here to remind you. It's all part of the effect of sin. The world is broken. And I'm convinced we should expect it to function as such. And yet, here's what's true. It's by death that we're saved. It's by death that we're saved. And so even in the curse, we have hope. (laughs) There's blessing. And though sin broke from God's ideals in such stark fashion, God was ready for it. God didn't blink. And see, Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, just as the sin of Adam and Eve led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's sin, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's the state in which you and I exist. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's the state that if you and I are in Christ, if we've given our, our lives to Him, if we put our faith in Him, we're made righteous by His death. Church, God wins. My question for you today is this. Are you on the team? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you submitted to God's design by by confessing that you and the world are now broken, but that God's plan of redemption is the only means by which you can participate in Eden's rest once again? Friends, that rest is available to you. Put your faith in Jesus. He's adequate for the task. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that even in this darkest of passages, even at the inception of sin, at the inception of humanity's guilt and brokenness and shame and fear, you had a plan right from the beginning. The gospel oozes forth from Genesis 3 and carries all the way to Revelation 22. God, you are the one who's triumphant. You're the one who sent your Son, our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus, to deliver us from the consequences of our sin and to step into life with you. God, if there's anyone here today that has yet to put their faith in you, if there's anyone listening to my voice online, if there's anybody watching on YouTube or Facebook this morning, I pray that they would turn to you and that they would confess their inability to solve their sin problems. The fig leaves aren't cutting it. And that they would accept the garments of righteousness made possible through the death, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that as they put on those new clothes, they would put on a a greater awareness, a a perfect awareness of the glory of your resurrection that, that because Jesus sacrificed for them, they have hope and a future. They're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I thank you for gathering us together this morning. May we live, even in this dark world, with the gospel at the fore. And in that, may we have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.